Two and a Half Admins, Episode 9. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And we're going to do some free consulting for you. But first, let's cover a couple of news stories. The first one is Intel are pretty much in trouble. At least their 7 nanometer delay has been extended again, and they've had to uh, do a bit of rejigging of their staff as a result. Yeah, they're they're, uh, struggling really hard these days. They have not come out well with their last laptop releases, desktop CPU releases, HEDT, uh, you know, high-end desktop releases, or server releases. Um, AMD's basically kicking their butt the entire way around, and uh, Intel have had to drop prices on chips to compensate. Uh, They've had... Not an entire failure to launch with 10 nanometer, but, uh, you know, they're, they've had problems both in getting decent clock speeds and in yield to the point that they're having to run parallel production of 14 nanometer. At this point, it's like plus, 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 plus. I think we've all lost count of the pluses, you know, and the 10 nanometer because they just can't build enough, you know, ice lake to satisfy demand. And they still haven't released any 10 nanometer desktop CPUs yet. And, you know. Most of the other people are up to are down to five nanometer now, uh, and it just it's looking like Intel's lost the way. And they're even talking about actually using some other fabs, like other companies, to do the manufacturing. Right, but like some of the big ones, like TSMC, are booked up doing Marvel, Nvidia, and AMD stuff. Well, I mean, Intel did get some TSMC time, but I mean, basically, our problem at this point is that. Every x86 chip that gets manufactured gets bought. You know, it's it's been that way for at least a decade, as far as I'm aware. So, you know, it, it's kind of good news and bad news. I mean, yes, Intel is getting their asses handed to them, you know, all the way around by AMD right now. But it's not like anybody even has the option to just say, well, we'll buy nothing but AMD then. Because Intel has also had 10 times the revenue of AMD up until now. So it's going to take quite a few release cycles for it to even be possible for AMD to supply anywhere near as much of the market as Intel has been. Yeah, and especially if you're using third-party fabs like AMD has been, you have less control over what capacity is available to you. And you know, if Intel's buying up some of that capacity, or you know, AMD and Intel are having to compete for the the fab capacity, then it makes it even harder for AMD to be able to scale up to meet that demand. I don't think anybody really knows for sure yet what Intel is actually commissioning at TSMC, though, Mm -hmm. I I don't think it's their main processor line. I think they're mostly moving their older, crappier stuff that they really don't need to be thinking much about. They're moving off of their own foundries and, you know, onto TSMC and other third parties. Intel's still manufacturing 40 nanometer stuff, not for, you know, general purpose CPUs, but they make a lot of different chips. What about these new graphics cards that they were supposed to be coming out with? Presumably that was more data center based rather than gaming focused. Yeah, for the moment, that's entirely data center based. It may or may not ever become, you know, a a gaming thing. I don't know. Uh, It's all rumors at this point as to what's actually going to go out to third party foundries and what's going to stay at Intel. It's hard to say. I, I would imagine that some of the XE stuff probably will get farmed out, but I don't know. Part of it is that at this point, Intel probably doesn't even know. And so it's (laughs) anything that anybody says is just a guess. 
Yeah, at this point, most likely all Intel has really done is just defensively bought some time, like like as an option at TSMC. Like, oh, hey, we're going to option, you know, this much of your capacity now, and we'll figure out how we're going to use that later. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of manufacturers do that, actually. They'll just go ahead and option time to Foundry, and then they'll allocate it later once they have a better idea what they need to do with it. Where does ARM fit into all of this and NVIDIA buying them, possibly? Yeah, it, it doesn't exactly yet. Uh, there's probably going to be an eventual sea change, in my opinion, to ARM from x86 for much the same reason that, you know, back in the 80s, the IBM PC compatible killed the market because it was a much more open design and it, you know, therefore became possible to build those architectures a lot more affordably. ARM as a company, uh, they don't build a processor. They just kind of help you realize your ideas with ARM designs on a a more open framework. And for the moment, it's difficult to really directly compare ARM and x86. They're different. um, They have a different set of core competencies, put it that way. Well, and in general, the every ARM chip is a completely different architecture, basically. Yeah. ARM licenses you the IP and you make your own CPU architecture out of it. And so the biggest problem ARM has had is that just because it works on that ARM processor doesn't mean it's going to work on this ARM processor or whatever because everything is so different. Uh, now they're trying to improve that some with their new like ARM server-ready platform, which is trying to make something more like an x86 server where, you know, here's a bunch of things that are actually interchangeable. Uh, and, you know, if it works on the, you know, the soft iron, it'll work on the Ampere or whatever. And maybe that'll start to get there. But it is weird because, you know, you, no one, you can't buy a CPU from ARM. You can license the stuff to build your own CPU from ARM, and then you have to go get it manufactured somewhere. And it's just very different, like you were saying. Yeah, and the, the performance profiles of, you know, ARM and x86 in general are pretty different right now. I hesitate to try to speak really concretely about this because there is so much variance between ARM CPUs. But in general, you can usually expect that x86-64 is going to outperform ARM typically, but that the ARM equivalent is going to perform a lot more consistently than the x86-64 does. Because the ARM architectures, they don't go in for this, you know, crazy deep like branch prediction and, you know, doing your best to figure out how to lay out the pipeline, you know, 10 moves ahead kind of thing that x86-64 is doing. Um, you don't really have hyper threading. Right. And the other thing you're looking at is the the performance per watt, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, if you have this much power budget, uh, it might take more ARM CPUs and, or CPU cores to get the same performance, but you can probably get the same or better performance in a power budget. But, you know, that's at rack scale where you're using machines and uh, assumes your workload can be spread across. It's it's just as easy to spread your workload across 30 machines as it is 10, which is not always the case. To be fair, I mean, you know, it's also a thing that fits in your pocket scale. I mean, a a modern smartphone is a pretty powerful device. And, you know, I mean, what are you what are you going to do? Are you going to build a Celeron smartphone? I don't think so. Well, they tried with some atoms, didn't they? But it didn't really work out very well. Exactly. I mean, when you look at the enormous advantage, uh, you know, just in how long it's been uh, a part of the the infrastructure and the ecosystem that x86, you know, processors have. If we don't have x86 phones at this point, you can guess it's not because, you know, nobody thought about it or nobody wanted to. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about something that I saw on Bleeping Computer this week. And that is, if you add certain IPs 
to your host file that are Windows telemetry IPs, then Windows 10 marks it as malware and deletes the file. I actually tried this. I downloaded a host file from encryptoplanet.com and it looked pretty normal to me. And so I put it onto the Windows machine, opened it, it asked me how I wanted to open it, opened it with Notepad, and then it said, this is malware, and deleted it. Didn't give me any options, it just deleted the file. There's a couple of things to, to mention about that. One is that it, it didn't flag it as malware because it specifically blocked the Windows 10 telemetry. It flagged it as malware because it blocked any of the Microsoft Windows 10 backend infrastructure. Putting anything in the host file that's going to null route something from Microsoft.com is going to get it flagged as malware. Uh, that's that's one thing. So it's not really specifically about the telemetry. You know, with a, a more generic rule for Defender on that, they're, what they're really trying to catch there is people that are trying to block or redirect Windows updates, which would be, you know, a massive security problem. The next observation is, so you don't trust Microsoft and you don't want them to have your data. So you use a Microsoft provided tool on a Microsoft operating system to try to change how your DNS is resolved so that Microsoft won't get your information. What the hell, man? Like you do that at the router. You don't do that on the Windows PC when you didn't trust Windows to begin with. I would almost expect that Windows would ignore the host file when doing resolutions to try to do telemetry stuff. (laughs) Like... With the amount of stuff, even Linux that tries to ignore your resolve.conf and so on and use resolve D or whatever. Or, you know, for example, on Android phones, you give out a certain DNS server via DHCP on your Wi-Fi, but Android's like, well, I'm going to use the Google Open DNS server to do the resolution unless I find that that's blocked because, you know, they're like, yeah, I don't care what you do. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going, I I think this guy is a thief, so I'm going to tell him, don't steal stuff, and that will fix the problem. Or or in particular, I'm going to say, don't steal this, that, or the other thing. Everything else is fine, though. So you're saying it's a bad idea for me to use Attaway on Android, which is from F-Droid, and all it does is just updates your host file with the latest list of uh, advertising sites or whatever. Well, again, if you're defending against advertisements in your browser or whatever, that's one thing. If you're trying to stop the operating system spying on you, using the operating system's resolver config stuff to do it, doesn't seem like that's going to work, right? Besides which, I'm just going to go ahead and say no, that absolutely is a bad idea because, um, you know, the way these things work, they they dump literally thousands of host names into Etsy hosts, you know, to, to try to null route any attempts to contact these advertising servers. Mm. And now every time your operating system or an application on your OS wants to resolve any domain name, it has to parse thousands of these things in a flat hosts file before it does anything else. So, yeah, that's a yeah. terrible idea. The host file wasn't really designed to scale like that. You know, it's, it's the reason why we, inve- we stopped using the host file and invented DNS. <laughs> <laughs> well, hang on. Weren't you just talking about how powerful Android devices are these days? I wouldn't do that crap on an x86 machine either. Fair enough. Do a couple thousand extra operations I don't need every time I try to open a connection to a website or not? Yeah. And every single time. How many ad server host names do you think there are on the internet, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> You need to put one of every single one of them in a flat text file and parse it every single time you try to resolve, you know, an URL for an image, a CSS file, a new link that you clicked, you know, whatever, anything. Yeah. 
But in my defense of using this, oh it's all well and good to say block it at the, the router level or use Pi-hole or whatever. But when you're out and about using a mobile connection, you have no access to the router, no control over it. You only have control over your device. Right. Well, why aren't you using a browser that does this blocking instead of doing it via the operating system's host file? It was meant to have, you know, a small number of overrides uh, for the global DNS. Because it's not just the browser, it's all the apps that I use as well. It blocks all the ads in everything. We're conflating a whole bunch of different potential reasons to screw around with DNS here. You know, we're talking about ad blocking. We're talking about Windows 10 telemetry blocking. We're talking about mobile. We're talking about a laptop. And all of this is a little bit different depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But I'm going to bring it back to your horrible F-Droid supplied gigantic host file monstrosity. <laughs> and I'm going to say that, you know, if that's what you want to do, the proper way to handle that is not this ridiculous host file. It's to actually just set up a DNS server that has bogus entries for those specific, you know, URLs if you want them and use that as your systems, you know, uh, resolving DNS server. Set up a pie hole at DigitalOcean and can configure your phone to use it even when you're roaming. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, you know, the set up a pie hole at DigitalOcean thing, I mean, that's one recommendation for, you know, our half admin. But in general, the people that are designing these systems that are creating these host files should be coming up with an idea that's not quite so stonex stupid in the first place. Yeah, like really, you would want to hook the system resolver library. If it was a desktop type system, then, you know, with NSS and stuff, we have, there's a pluggable system for intercepting DNS and making stuff so that, you know, when you're part of an LDAP domain, you can look up these domains without having to actually try to resolve them with DNS for your local network and so on. And something like that probably makes uh, more sense, like the NS switch type stuff to, in a faster interface, be able to say, here's the host name I'm trying to look up and being able to look in a data structure more advanced than that text file, right? Because then you can do a binary search, like you have the list of host names that you want to block sorted alphabetically and you can do a binary search or whatever and you'll find the answers a heck of a lot faster than if you're literally having to parse that whole hundreds of thousands of lines of text that are just new line delimited. And so you basically have to examine every character of the file. Yeah. Are you literally, I mean, you don't even need to have a hook in the, you know, the resolver service. I mean, all you really, the simplest way to accomplish it is just to run a DNS daemon on the device. Um, your DNS daemon, you know, uses your ISP provided DNS server as basically, uh, you know, the replacement for its root hints. And then it, it just has zones, you know, for all the things that it doesn't like. So when your browser asks, you know, hey, how do I get to crappyadserver.com? It says, you know, 127.0.0.1, lol. Although probably not that because God only knows what you might actually be serving from an HTTP service on your own system, which is another problem with the host file. <laughs> well, I saw in the one example in the website that was talking about the host file, they were using 0.0.0.0, which you should instantly <laughs> fail to try to connect to rather than localhost, because the problem you can often get there is it'll spend up to two minutes trying to connect and then time out. Yep. Making everything slower, defeating the point of not loading the ads, which was to make things load faster. Yeah, so really the thing that you ought to be doing is you ought to be using a very specific IP address in the localhost zone. So maybe it's, you know, 127.88.88.99 or whatever. And on that single IP address, you are very deliberately running an HTTP and HTTPS server that will answer immediately with nothing. So that way you present yourself with the least in the way of security problems, potential timeout issues, whatever. Mm. Well, my host file is only 1.6 megabytes, so it can't be that many lines of text in there. Eh? 
All right, Joe, I'm going <laughs> to hand you a pencil and a piece of paper. I'm going to ask you to write 1.6 megabytes of domain names, one after the other. That's literally 1.6 million letters, right? You understand that? <laughs> no, it's not that much. My phone's really powerful. It's fine. <laughs> a quick one then. Um, you tried out Mozilla's new WireGuard-based VPN service then. Yeah, I did. Uh, at the end of the day, it is, uh, it's it's Molvad service rebranded with a different single sign-on authentication. That's what it comes down to. Um, it's WireGuard on the back end, but you do not manage the WireGuard config yourself. You know, like you can't just write a cont file and generate your own key. Um, all the keys are dynamically managed. And um, for Firefox, you actually just... If you don't already have one, you generate a new Firefox login, uh, you know, the same backend system that you would use to sync your bookmarks and, uh, you know, any uh, extensions you installed, all that kind of thing. And you tie a credit card to it. And once you've done that, you get billed five bucks a month and you get an automagical handy dandy WireGuard based service that actually goes to Molvad's backend servers, um, which they've got quite a few of them all around the world. Uh, bandwidth is pretty good, but hilariously, if your major concern is privacy, you're better off ditching Mozilla and just contracting directly with Molvad instead. You say in this article that you can just send them an envelope full of cash. Yes. So Molvad never, if, you, if you're dealing with Molvad directly yourself, they never know your name, nor do they want to. Um, you just go to their webpage and you click generate account number and poof, you get an account number. You don't have to feed them an email address, nothing. That account number is what identifies you. And now you just have to, you know, figure out some way to get them money that's tied to that account number. And that's it. That can be, you can pay them in Bitcoin and say, this is for account number, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you can, you know, you can do your traditional PayPal or credit card or whatever. Obviously, that does potentially tie that account number to you. But yeah, one of your options is literally you can go get your filthiest, grubbiest envelope and, uh, you know, stuff it full of dollar bills you got from the local strip club and chuck your account number into the envelope and they'll go, yep, <laughs> all right, good to go, paid up. But arguably, the kind of target audience for this are not people who are trying to be secure necessarily. They're people who want to watch Netflix from another country. Uh, that is one target audience. I think you're being really narrow if you think there's only one target audience for VPN. You know, oftentimes it can be just privacy. It's not that you don't want the websites to know who you are. You don't want the local network to be able to see what you're doing. You know, especially some ISPs are bad. You know, the reason why Netflix switched to using HTTPS for streaming the videos, even though they're already encrypted, was because analytics companies were buying the data from Comcast and other ISPs and being like, that IP watched this movie, then that movie. Uh, being able to fingerprint it just based on like the order and the size of the chunks of the video. Uh, they would be able to, you know, basically where the keyframes were in the video and how those chunks got split up, they would be able to fingerprint and be like, all right, we have a correlation that that, you know, chunks of this size in this order means this movie. Yeah. Think of it like antivirus. Basically, you're just looking for signatures. And if you find that signature, then you're like, yep, this is the movie they're watching. Yeah. Uh, and so sometimes it's just about avoiding some of that. It's also about the coffee shop problem. Um, you know, if you're using a VPN, then whatever jerk hole at the local Starbucks that's hanging out with a Wi-Fi pineapple in their backpack uh, is not going to have any luck when you accidentally connect to their pineapple rather than to the Starbucks Wi-Fi because you're routing everything over a VPN. So it's still encrypted and they have no access to it. Even the normally non-encrypted parts like DNS because they're going over the VPN. Or, you know, because the coffee shop blocks most things, uh, you know, use the VPN and you avoid problems where you can't connect to what you need to. 
let's also not pretend that we don't know what a lot of people are buying these VPNs for, whether it's a good idea or not. Uh, you know, you want to download your perfectly legal Linux ISOs via the BitTorrent protocol, <laughs> and uh, you don't want anybody to be able to tie it back to you. Well, you know, that's pretty dangerous with most commercial VPNs, because how do you know that the VPN provider won't grass you out to the first three-letter agency that comes calling, either with or without a warrant? Uh, they all claim that they won't, but will they, won't they? Eh, well, if they never knew who the heck you were in the first place, yeah, the odds are a lot better that, you know, a subpoena going in their direction is not going to end up on your doorstep. All right, well, let's move on. Let's do a bit of free consulting. If you want to get in contact with us and ask the questions for Jim and Alan, you can do so via email, show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon. All the details are at 2.5admins.com. Thank you, everyone, who has been doing so, so far. Very much appreciated. So, Kevin writes in and asks, what are the security considerations for automating SSH between remote hosts for backups and such? What about island hopping attacks? Is there a more secure way for remote hosts to communicate? The security considerations are mostly down to the key file, right? When you're SSH, automating SSH from host A to host B, you prove that you're the allowed person to host B by answering a challenge with the private key. So it mostly comes down to how well you protect that private key. Uh, for backups, part of it can be deciding if one of the hosts is more in danger than the other and making sure that you pull versus push or the other um, so that you're connecting from the secure host to the insecure one so that if something happens, uh, maybe you've not opened the pipe in the wrong direction there. But it depends. And then island hopping is mostly the idea that if they compromised host A, which has this automated SSH to host B, then they can use that key that's just laying around and connect to host B. And now they've got that machine and any keys it had and so on. That's how that works. Uh, it comes down to, again, how you decide to protect the key. A lot of these uh, automated systems, you would just have the key laying around in plain text, uh, because if you put a password on it, then you have to enter a password and that doesn't really work. Uh, although you, there are things you can do with something like a, an SSH agent or something to have it encrypted, load it into the key manager manually by entering the password and then have it stay there until the reboot or whatever, uh, which can help. But Or Kerberos, wee! Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a, a lot of what this really comes down to practically, um, I like to call it SSH hygiene and directionality. You should always be thinking about what direction you're SSHing. Like, you know, if if you're at your workstation at home and you have a whole lot of different machines that you manage and maybe some of them belong to different organizations, what you don't ever want to do is SSH from your machine into this web server over here and then SSH from that web server into another web server over there when really you're just all working from your home and those things don't have anything to do with each other. It just felt convenient to do that because that was where you already had, you know, a terminal window open. Don't do that. Um, you want to minimize the number of hops that you're doing and be thoughtful about the directionality of it. You want to shell out from your workstation to each server individually. You don't connect in between servers with a key or a password unless you absolutely need to. And with backups, um, Alan briefly touched on, you know, push versus pull. And whether one host is more in danger than another, the proper way to handle that is always your production is in more danger than your backup. If it's not, you're doing it badly wrong because your backup host should have a very specific job. It does backups and nothing else. 
meatbags like yourself don't touch the backup server on a day-to-day operation. It doesn't need the applications that you interact with running. It doesn't have you doing weird things on it. It's just sitting there running backups. So now we get back to the directionality, which is you want that thing pulling backups. You don't ever want to let production make changes on the backup server. The backup server on its own schedule and its own policy reaches out to production, which says, yes, I recognize you. You're my backup server. You can do what you need to do. The backup server grabs its data and it disconnects. If you're sufficiently paranoid, your backup server is not reachable from the outside by SSH at all, and you have to carry your happy butt to a keyboard and a monitor in front of it to actually interact directly with it if you need to. Now, that's not always practical or possible, but that's the kind of ways you ought to be thinking is how do I limit the ways to get into the backup server or into your personal workstation, you know, any machine that's connecting to a whole bunch of prod, you know, from once, that's going to be a big area of weakness. So you need to think about the ways to make that as inassailable as possible. Now, beyond that, when we talk about the directionality again, you don't have to only use the key. You can also mix and match that with IP tables. If you're sufficiently paranoid, you may know that, okay, so this particular backup server is going to be connecting to this prod server, you know, on a daily basis to pull backups. Well, maybe you don't expose SSH to the whole freaking internet on that prod server. Maybe you literally just expose it by IP address to that backup server and nothing else. Very little of this is specific to SSH. It's how you should be thinking about network security in general. You want to think about how an attacker might pivot from one machine to the next, and you want to figure out ways to limit that ability to pivot. You want your attacker to be really frustrated that they got into machine A and they really wanted to get into machine B, but getting into A didn't help. It won't get them there. And now they're just sitting there on that machine, ticked off and, you know, hoping you'll do something to further let them in. Yeah. So uh, what I would suggest here is Michael W. Lucas's book, SSH Mastery. It has a bunch of tips on this type of stuff including using jump hosts and how to make that easier, but also things like in your authorized keys file, you can put restrictions on keys. Mm -hmm. You can say when the key that the backup server uses connects to this host, it has to come from this IP address and it can only run the rsync command and things like that. And so that book is probably your best start for how to do understanding the capabilities and the bits of uh, SSH, but also how to implement it uh, you know, it has recipes for, you know, common use cases and stuff and will really expand your mind about what you can do with SSH. Although also, you know, if we're in paranoid mode, I, I do want to mention that you should not overestimate the utility of saying, you know, this key is limited to this command, because if there is right. any kind of, you know, an overflow available in that command, you know, you, <laughs> once you pop a shell, you pop a shell and now they can do whatever they want to do. Yeah, and it's a, the same reason why you don't uh, allow sudo to run vi you make them use sudo edit because otherwise with vi once it's running as root you can just open other files and write other files and suddenly you know you're doing lots of things you weren't meant to do and so the book talks a bit more about that stuff as well uh, and also how to do ssh with a certificate authority uh, so that you can uh, give out keys and revoke them and stuff rather than managing an ssh uh, an authorized keys file you say here's our certificate authority and our revocation list, and any key I've signed is okay to connect, but I can revoke them whenever I need instantly rather than having to go to every host and make sure I got rid of all the authorized keys lines that were for that key. 
it might also be worth considering, you know, when you've got these automated root SSH connections, you know, or, or non-root, when you've got these automated SSH connections happening between machines, it may be worth considering adding another network layer of security in there. Like maybe don't do that over the open internet to begin with, do it over a WireGuard tunnel. Mm-hmm. It's just another layer. It's not a cure-all, but uh, it, it can keep the bots from hammering on an exposed SSH server, which can end up being important. Yeah, and just in general, defense in depth is always better. And like you said, even if the bots aren't getting in, you know, enough bots can make it hard for your backup server to, to establish a connection because there's just too many half-open connections and so on. And you don't want your, your backups to be blocked by Dedala's servers, basically. Yeah, I suspect a lot of our readers will have encountered the problem where they try to shell into a box at Linode or DigitalOcean and they discover that it takes them like an hour of trying before they can actually connect because, you know, some botnet is trying to hammer its way in mm-hmm. and is actually exhausting all the SSH listeners so that they can't get in. <laughs> yeah. And so like SSH has some rules where it says, you know, I only allow 30 half-open connections at once, but I'm not going to drop them all because I don't want you to lock, get locked out. So, you know, you, the persistent admin can still get in eventually, uh, but blocking that kind of stuff works a lot better. There's an IP tables rule I use for that as well, where if you get too many connections, you know, within a a unit of time from a given IP address, it'll not accept any more from that IP address for five or 10 minutes. Isn't fail to ban that on easy mode? Ah, fail to ban in theory could be that on easy mode, but usually with fail to ban. um, So the problem is that fail to ban actually adds firewall rules. What I was talking about is creating a firewall rule that does exactly what you want it to do, but using fail to ban allows your attacker to generate firewall rules based on their activity, which is just in general, it's not a a good mindset to be in like, oh, let me set this up where somebody can change what my firewall does. Uh, No. And, And fail to ban only bans people after they fail to log in. It doesn't ban people who just opened a socket and didn't say anything or said something very, very slowly. Which, guess what botnets tend to do a lot? <laughs> Called slow lores, right? Uh, the idea is that uh, a firewall rule can say, you know, any IP address is only allowed to send four setup packets per minute or something. And if you send more than that, we're just going to drop them on the floor and pretend like you weren't trying to connect. Yeah. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here. All good advice as usual. I've learned loads this episode. Thanks, chaps. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, I am on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. You can email us show at 2.5admins.com. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.